of losing money in the stock market roller coaster? Frustrated with the government taxing you into oblivion? Worried about inflation? How do you prepare for so many financial uncertainties? Welcome to the show that will help you develop your game plan. The Financial Quarterback with Josh Jelinski. Josh is a noted financial advisor and president of the Jelinski Advisory Group. And he's here to answer your questions. Call into the show at 800-321-0710. 800-321-0710. Now let's kick off your financial future. Here's Josh Jelinski. Hi, everybody. This is Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback. We're live with Dan Pilla, nationally regarded tax expert. So, Dan, for those who are not familiar with your work, describe your background with over four decades in uh, tax work. Yeah, Josh, my, my background, real simple, is I'm a tax litigation specialist. What that means is I don't prepare tax returns for a living, but I get into the after the IRS calls the return into question. Then I deal specifically with individuals and small businesses that have challenges with the IRS. Audits, appeals, collection problems. I've represented hundreds of small businesses in tax court around the country over every kind of audit issue can, you can imagine, as well as a great deal of collection matters as well. I've written 15 books on, well, actually 14 books on dealing with the IRS, all self-help type material. My latest book is called Dan Pillow's Small Business Tax Guide, and that's based on that 40 years of experience in litigating with the IRS on behalf of small businesses. I show small businesses how to stay out of trouble with the IRS in the first place. So that's who I am. That's what I do. How hard is it to go to battle with the IRS and win, you know? Well, well it depends on the situation. If we're talking about audits, Josh, believe it or not, it's not that difficult at all. Uh, the audit results that the IRS comes up with in the typical audit scenario, those results are wrong between 60 to 90% of the time. So depending on the issue that we're talking about, uh, you are going to win your case more than half the time when you're dealing with the IRS. This is counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. Most people believe that the IRS wins all the time, and that just isn't the case. You know, depending on what kind of audit issues arise in a situation, you know, if they, the IRS, let me give you an example. IRS looks at the typical business tax return and they look at all the various deductions that are claimed on the return for travel and entertainment and for meals and for advertising and, you know, on and on and on, right? And the IRS might disallow six or seven of those things based on this claim or that claim. Well, we take that issue up on appeal or we take it to the tax court and almost always you're going to reduce that tax liability considerably compared to what the IRS argues you owe them. So the auditors are wrong a predominant amount of the time. The, the, the key is, and this is true across the board, the key is the ability to win the case dealing with the IRS depends on business records. Two-thirds of all the problems that businesses have with the IRS are records related. In other words, they're not keeping the proper records, or at least the IRS doesn't think they're keeping the proper records. Now, again, this gets back to the determinations being wrong 60 to 90% of the time. Very often, businesses will produce records that show that they're entitled to a deduction, but the IRS auditor just doesn't allow it. That's why it's important to understand the right of appeal to the IRS's Office of Appeals and the United States Tax Court if necessary. Well, I, I always think you're too big because you've been around for, you, you still take personal clients? 
Oh, yeah. No, no question. Yeah, absolutely. We've got uh, two levels of work that I do with clients. The first level is a coaching level where I will talk somebody through their problem. And then the second level is direct representation, where I actually physically represent a person before the IRS or the United States tax court, depending on the situation. Wow. So an article from National Review titled Employee Retention Credit Claims, the IRS and the ERC Mess. First, talk about the issue and then talk about the problems. Yeah, the the issue is the employee retention credit, Josh. That was a credit that was put into the law with the CARES Act in 2020, and it created a refundable tax credit for businesses that is very much like the earned income tax credit. And what I mean by that is as a refundable credit, you can get back more money from the government than you paid in in the first place. And with respect to businesses, the rules were were pretty complicated, but it, it boiled down to if you were the subject of a government shutdown order, your business was the subject of a government shutdown order, or you had a significant reduction in your gross receipts during a period in 2020 or 2021, three quarters of 2020 and three quarters of 2021, then you could actually get money back from the government based on employment taxes that you paid for workers that you kept on your payroll. So this is a big deal. This refundable credit is like you know, quote unquote, free money from the government, right? Just as I said, like the earned income tax credit. Well, the problem, so that's the issue. The problem now, Josh, is that a number of marketing companies grew up overnight. They sprang up overnight after the passage of the CARES Act And they started hustling businesses across the country to claim this credit. And okay, fine. Businesses are entitled to claim the credit if they qualify. But here's where the problems arise. A number of these marketing companies were not doing the correct analysis to determine whether the company actually qualified for the credit or not. They were just simply making the claims for the credit and getting the money. And the reason they did that is the IRS announced in the spring and summer of 2020, that they were going to get the money out to businesses that claimed the refund as quickly as they possibly could. So that sent the message to a lot of these marketing companies that the IRS wasn't going to audit these claims and they were just going to grant the claims. Well, Josh, that's exactly what they did throughout 2020, 2021, into 2022. But now they've recognized in the summer of 2023, they recognized that a great number of the claims that businesses were filing might not qualify for the credit. So they're turning the dogs loose now on these employee retention credit claims. As of September of 2023, they stopped processing the claims. And now they've introduced a withdrawal program that allows companies to withdraw their claims if they think they're not allowed to make the claim. And the IRS has actually introduced a voluntary disclosure program effective immediately that allows businesses to go into the IRS and say, hey, we don't want to do it if if we don't think they're entitled. You only do it if you're not entitled to make the claim. So it allows businesses to step forward and say, "I, I did not qualify for this credit during this period of time. And so we want to give the money back. And it's really an opportunity to give the money back without penalties and without interest. So this is a situation, Josh, that's causing concern because the IRS has now mailed out as of uh, end of December, 2023, just a couple of weeks ago, they mailed out 20,000 notices to businesses that declare that these businesses were not entitled to make the claim. They 
They got another 20,000 notices teed up to go here. And the IRS is making a number of recommendations for audit and criminal investigation activity in connection with these ERC claims. So the, the mess, Josh, is getting, it seems like it's getting worse every day as thousands of businesses were probably sucked into making claims that they didn't qualify for because of these marketing companies that are out there uh, hustling up this business. Yeah, every day I would get calls, mails, emails. Oh, you're entitled to all this money, no questions asked. And I actually read the fine print. And because I've had you on the show and other tax experts, I think they told me I, I wasn't even eligible for it. To me, it was a dumb thing because it was like, let's say your quarter in 2020, you had to have a worse quarter in 2020 than in 2019 of the corresponding quarter. Right. That, yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yep. And so I didn't really qualify for that because of whatever reason, I, I actually had a, a worse quarter in 2019 than the corresponding quarter because I was so busy, I had nothing to do other than work. Sure, COVID. sure. <laughs> and, and, that, and that's true of a lot of people. But but see, here's one of the things that most of these marketing companies don't realize. And unfortunately, a, a great number of tax professionals don't understand the nuance either. It's an either or question. Either your business gross receipts dropped in a quarter in 2020 compared to the corresponding quarter in 2019, or or your business was subject to a shutdown order, a government shutdown order. Didn't have to be both. So you could actually have an increased revenue in 2020, like you say you did, even if with an increased revenue in 2020, if your business was subject to a shutdown order, you could still get the employee retention credit. Now, here's the thing. When this thing was passed, and I think you and I talked about this in the summer of 2020, right after the spring of 2020, right after the CARES Act came out. I yep. know you and I did a show at that yes. time, and I think we discussed this at that point in time. But th there's so much confusion about this because the law was confusing when it first came out. That was bad enough. But then the employee retention credit specifically went through a total of four amendments between March of 2020 and the end of 2021, the end of 2021, four different amendments, Josh, and people can't keep it straight. Are you telling me I could have got the employee retention credit and I didn't? I'm not saying you could have, but it's certainly possible. Wow. And you potentially can still get it depending on what quarter we're talking about, because you got three years from the date that employment tax returns are filed in which to amend the returns. So you might still be in that window. So wait, so where's the fine print on this? I'm trying to look. I remember the corresponding quarter which we didn't get that. We, we, didn't, we didn't qualify right. for that. But we're also subject to a government shutdown. But, but weren't we exempt from a government shutdown because I have to deal with money? Well, you have to tell me because each government shutdown order was worded differently from state to state. Yeah, I'm yeah. in Minnesota. I'm in Minnesota. My business was not subject to a government shutdown order precisely because I was in the financial uh, trades or businesses, tax trades or businesses. We were specifically exempt. So my business did not uh, suffer as a result of a shutdown order, nor did we have a drop in revenue. And there was another proviso that applied to my business that may or may not apply to yours. And I will tell you, Josh, this is one of the areas where the marketing companies are really screwing up because they're not doing this evaluation. Your employees that you are claiming the credit for cannot be related to the owner of the company. 
All right. Well, the employees in my business in the summer of 2020, myself, my wife, my daughter, my son, and my daughter-in-law, uh. right? So all, all five of them are related parties to the owners of the business. And none of the wages we paid those people during that period qualified for ERC. So how, how many marketing companies know that? I, I don't I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm looking at the New Jersey executive order. I don't know. Maybe you could look that up for me. But maybe you could take it for one business, but not another. I mean, we had people who stayed at home. I mean, I was at home. Uh-huh. But I just was available over Zoom. I got I to gotta figure that out. Part of me was like, I didn't even want to deal with the yeah, yeah. A liability. Like, I have a buddy of mine who got the memo from the government that he took it erroneously. But I don't think he did. Well, he may not have. And just because the IRS says you did it wrong. Do you help people it. with this? Could I send my buddy? Oh, to you? oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. We do this all the time for sure. Yeah, I, I, I've spent a great deal of time on this employee retention credit. And Josh, over the last couple of years, I've done a number of professional seminars on this seminar specifically for tax lawyers and CPAs. So they understand the employee retention credit and, and, and how to defend it if the IRS challenges it, assuming that you did it right in the first place. And of course, that's the assumption uh, that we don't know. It's based on obviously what each individual business did or didn't do. All of these things make me not want to apply for it because then I'm worried that I'm going to have the long arm of the law after me. It just well, and, 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 and you know, and that's a question that comes up all the time. And it's not just with the employee retention credit, but it's really with any deduction that can go on your tax return. I've had people tell me a thousand times over the years, okay, I might be entitled to that deduction, but I don't want to claim it because I don't want to put a target on my back. Well, listen, if you're entitled to claim a deduction, or in this case, a credit, and you don't claim it, the only thing you're doing is guaranteeing that you're paying the government money you don't owe. It doesn't make sense to pay the government money you don't owe if you qualify for the deduction. The key is to be able to prove that you qualify for the deduction and have the records you need to be able to justify it. That's the issue. Anybody can go through an audit, Josh. They don't select returns for audit because there's a mistake in the return. Of course, they certainly can do that, but the vast majority of returns that are selected for audit are selected more or less randomly based on a computer program that the IRS uses to evaluate the, the potential for, and not the existence of an error, but the potential for an error in the tax return. And so anybody can be audited. And the key is not to try to, to run from the idea of being audited, although nobody wants to be audited. The key is to make sure that you can survive the audit by proving that your tax return is correct with the proper documents and facts and so on. Yeah. Like I'm looking at this ERTC fine print and I'm looking at the New Jersey executive order. It says banks and other financial institutions with retail functions. Like, I don't know if that would apply to me or not. Well, I, I don't know either. You got to tell me whether you operated at a retail level. Did you have a storefront or an office where people came in, could come in off the street, or was it strictly appointment only, not quote unquote retail? Well, it was appointment only during COVID. We were just available via the phone or internet or Zoom. Oh, but, but how about know? prior to COVID? Was it appointment only then? Or could somebody walk into your office and say, I want to talk to someone? No, no, we generally do only uh, appointments. I, I don't take walk-ins unless they, I mean, if they walk in, they got to book an appointment. But but you, you accepted walk-ins for the purposes of scheduling an appointment, correct? We just don't, we don't do that. People call and they schedule. Okay, so they call. So maybe you don't qualify as retail then. 
I think I've had one walk-in in five years. Yeah. <laughs> you know. No, this is great. So we're with Dan Pilla of, what's your website, Dan? Maybe it seems like prices can't get much higher or that the stock market is headed for bear territory. Or maybe you're worried about another great recession. Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback, can help you protect your family's financial future in times like these. Call 888-988-5674 to take advantage of Josh's 27-point plan to achieve financial health. And when you call, you'll receive a free copy of Josh's book, Retirement Reality Check. Call 888-988-5674 to receive your free copy of Retirement Reality Check. Yeah, the website is taxhelponline.com. It's all one word, no spaces of any kind, taxhelponline.com. Hi, everybody. We're back. This is Josh Jelinski, the financial quarterback with Dan Pilla. What's your book again, your latest book, The Small Business? Yeah, the latest book is called The Small Business Tax Guide. The Small Business Tax Guide. So this ERTC, anything else we should know about? So we can still file claims. You just need to make sure you're compliant with the law. Any uh, warnings about the RTC? The thing I would encourage you to do is, is not consult a marketing firm that is hustling the ERC credits and claims, but rather an experienced tax professional who knows what the law is and what the requirements are. As I said, this is a complicated law, was amended four times over the course of its life. It's since been repealed, so you can't make any claim whatsoever uh, starting first quarter of 2022. And even fourth quarter 2021 claims are very, very narrow. So you gotta be careful who's telling you when you can make the claim and how to make the claim. You gotta be dealing with somebody that knows what the issues are, Josh. That's the main thing. If you've already made a claim and you're not sure you can have your claim evaluated and then there's two approaches that you can take right now with the IRS either withdraw your claim if you haven't gotten paid on your claim or you can offer to what's called a voluntary disclosure to go back to the IRS and say the claim wasn't correct we want to give the money back and that's an option as well so you got to evaluate all your options depending on your circumstances wonderful so uh, what are some new tax laws our listeners need to know about well, the, the biggest thing, Josh, is, is here we are on the threshold of a new calendar year. All of the small businesses out there need to do an evaluation of their income and expenses for 2023. The last quarter estimated tax payment is due for 2023 is due uh, basically the 15th of January of 2024, uh, which is, uh, you know, what, a week and a half from now, 10 days from now. So you want to make sure that you're doing your profit and loss on a regular basis. Now, here we are at the end of the year. So you absolutely need to do a year end profit and loss so that you know where you stand as far as your tax liability is concerned. You don't want to be in a situation where, you know, it's April 14th and you get news from your tax preparer that you owe the IRS $15,000 and the money's due, you know, 24 hours from now. You don't want to be in that situation. You need to evaluate your financial situation right now for 2023 so that you can make an estimated payment here coming up before your tax return is due. Now, the good news is that during 2023, we didn't see a lot of tax law changes. Nothing really got done in terms of new tax laws, but that's not going to be the case in 2020. I shouldn't say it's not going to be the case. Well, they want to make 
all kinds of changes for 2024. And of course, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expires at the end of 2024 into 2025. So, you know, it depends on what happens here uh, going forward with Congress. But for right now, I want businesses to do that financial evaluation and make sure that you got your tax liability covered for 2023. Any other uh, last minute tax tips, things listeners can do to save on taxes in 2023? Well, the only thing you can do to save on taxes in 2023 now is to either contribute to or start a new retirement plan. You can designate payments in 2024 to apply to a 2023 retirement plan up to April 15th of 2024. So that's really the only thing you can do right now, Josh, and you probably know those rules better than I do as far as the investment stuff is concerned. But that's really what uh, the only thing that's left now that we've rolled over into 2024. The government, kind of on that, the government made it much easier. Typically, in if we did a new 401k or defined benefit pension plan or something like that, we'd get it done by 1231. They've changed the deadline to the tax filing deadline of the business and that does help a lot of flexibility. Yes, yes. I mean, I used yep, to work around yep. the clock last week of the year. Yep. Still work very hard last week of the year, but it gives us a nice little break. Although it was funny, when we had the old rule, I felt that business owners, because they had that deadline, didn't procrastinate. Yeah, yeah. Where a business owner, as I'm sure you have a lot of business owner clients, they'll procrastinate till October 15th, you know. Oh, listen, it's, it's human nature, Josh. When you don't have a deadline, you don't act. When, when there's a deadline in front of you, I mean, I see this with my tax delinquency clients. You know, about 80% of the work I do, 75% of the work I do is tax delinquency negotiations. So a client comes in the door that owes two or three or $400,000, they want to negotiate a settlement with the IRS. Well, when people owe that kind of money, Josh, generally speaking, they hide their head in the sand as long as they can. And what gets them off the dime into the office is start working on a resolution is an IRS notice that gives them a 30-day deadline to pay up or else. Yeah. And you know, once they see that in the mail, then they want to take action to get the resolution, even though the problem has been hanging over their head for maybe four, five, six, eight, 10 years in some cases. It's that final notice letter. You've got 30 days to pay up or else that gets people motivated. And I say, you know, why wait until they're in your face? Why wait until they're turning down the screws? Get your situation resolved as quickly as you can. What other tax tips do you feel that the average person is missing out on? Well, I think if we're talking about W-2 employees, and let's talk about those for, for a minute here, the overwhelming majority of W-2 employees, Josh, overpay their taxes. 85% of the people in the country get a tax refund. About all of those 85% of the people, not certainly all of them, but the vast majority of those 85% are wage earners who overpay their taxes. So uh, this is another reason to look at your financial situation in 2023 compared to 2024. You don't want a tax refund. And again, this is something that you know better than I do. The IRS is holding your money for 12, 14, 15 months. They're not paying you a nickel's worth of interest on that money. You are better off taking that money to somebody like you, an investment specialist who knows what they're doing, and get that money invested so it's grown for you over time. The average tax refund is now about 3,500 bucks. So that means the IRS is keeping, you know, what, about $300 a month, month in and month out of revenue that people don't owe 
whole. And when they give it back to them, as I said, 12, 15 months later, you get it back without interest. That That is just sheer financial foolishness. You're much better off setting up a retirement vehicle, an investment vehicle. And even if it's not a tax deferred retirement plan, some kind of investment vehicle where you get the benefit of interest or growth or both on the account over time, as opposed to letting the IRS hold the money. No, fantastic. Yeah, too many people overpay taxes. As we were talking about the RTC, anything we didn't mention on the RTC that our listeners should be made aware of? No, I, th- I think we covered the nuts and bolts of it. But let me let me say this now. There's one other issue that you and I need to discuss. And and, and this is something that we can delve into at length if, uh, you know, maybe in another call or, or, if, or if we got time. And that is this Corporate Transparency Act that was passed in 2021 and now takes effect in January of 2024. Every business in America needs to know about this, Josh, because this is a reporting requirement. It's got nothing to do with the tax return. It's got nothing to do with paying taxes. It's a separate reporting requirement that now kicks in effective January 1st. And I have found that a lot of small businesses don't know about this and the ones that do know don't understand it. So maybe this is something we can talk about, you know, in a future program if you want to, but this is an issue that really is important. Yeah, let's talk about that. I hate this new bill. (laughs) Wasn't it passed by President Trump as part of some defense spending bill? It was an omnibus bill. It was buried in an omnibus bill, and I can't tell you which one it was. It was signed in 2021. It It was as he was leaving office. It was buried into like a defense bill. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. It's called the Corporate Transparency Act, and it requires every business entity that was established with the filing of a document with a secretary of state. So it would be a corporation, an LLC, a limited partnership, not a partnership per se, but a limited partnership established under state law. Essentially, an entity established under state law, Josh, is now required to file what is called a beneficial ownership interest report, BOI, beneficial ownership interest report, with the federal government. It doesn't go on your tax return. It has to be filed with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Center, what they call FinCEN, on their website. And it's got to be filed for existing businesses that existed as of January 1st, 2024. It's got to be filed within a year. For new businesses that are created during 2024, you've got 90 days from the date of creation in which to submit that form. And then businesses created after January 1st, 2025 have 30 days to file the form. And this form, I'm telling you, it is just an information return All you're doing is disclosing who created the business and who the beneficial owners of the business are, the shareholders, the people that get the profit share of the business, right? You're disclosing who they are. But if you don't file this form on time and accurately, it's a criminal penalty of up to $10,000 in two years in prison. And it's a civil penalty, Josh, of $500 a day for every day that form is not filed. So it's pretty egregious civil penalties here that are laid out in connection with this thing. So business owners need to pay attention to this. It's just another in the long line of these ongoing disclosure rules that the government passes year after year after year so they can get more and more and more information on people. So if I own 10 LLCs indirectly, 
let's say you're a uh, real estate investor and you have 10 various LLCs. Very common, by the way. Do you have to file for each of those LLCs? That is exactly right. Yep. Every individual entity created with the filing of a separate document with the Secretary of State, which an LLC does, you file a document with the LLC that creates your LLC charter, right? And that is a state-created entity. So if you've got 10 of those, you've got to file 10 reports with FENCEN. Every year? Not every year. The good news is not every year. You file it once, and then you have a responsibility to file a new one only if there is a change in circumstances. So if the ownership changes, if the stock ownership changes, then you would have to file a new form. If you brought on another member of the LLC, you started as a single member, you brought on an investor, now you got it. Wow. Now you got a two-member LLC, then it would have to be changed. So assuming there are changes, then you have to update it. No changes, no update. Now, then I'm looking at their exemption. You know what I love, though? If you're a large company or publicly traded company, you don't have to comply with this. <laughs> Here are the 23 exemptions. I went on the FinCEN website. 23 of them, yeah. A securities reporting issuer. So if you're a big, you know, Fidelity, Schwab, I guess, mutual fund, governmental authority, you get exempt. Bank, credit unions depository institution, money services business, broker or dealer in securities, securities exchange, other exchange act, investment company or investment advisor. So my SEC RIA is exempt? Apparently. I guess. <laughs> yeah. But I'm so scared. I might just file it. You know, it's like, it's like I don't want to be $500 a day. There's a little booklet on the FenCEN website that I encourage businesses to get. It's called the, the Small Entities Compliance Guide. It's on the FenCEN website. Why would they do this to the small business? Here's what their theory is. No, no, Tom is saying we file it every year in our ADV. No, no, this is a new rule. This is a CTA. This is, the, this is completely different. No, from no, your... I think what he's saying is because we are an SEC registered investment advisor, Right, right. You have to disclose every year who your beneficial exactly. owners are anyway. Exactly. And, and, and I think the theory behind this list of exempt organizations is they already have that. They're already doing this every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's, I believe that to be the case. Yes. And you, you'll also notice on the list of exempt entities is tax exempt entities. Well, tax exempt entities like churches, charitable organizations, educational organizations don't have owners. Yeah. Right. They don't have better, they have employees, they pay their employees, but they don't have owners. One of the requirements to be an exempt organization is that you can't pay a dividend to quote unquote shareholders. The, the money's got to be spent on your exempt purpose. And of course, that can include wages to necessary employees, but you can't pay dividends. So I think that's why they're exempt. So yeah, so to the extent Tom's talking about these disclosures that go on every year anyway, then that, that would be the reason for the exemption. But if you're a small business owner, there's nothing you could do. You're screwed. This is just the new law. Well, yeah, except it only applies to entities. So if you're a small business owner and you operate as a sole proprietorship, well, you didn't get a, 
a certificate from the Secretary of State to operate as a sole proprietorship. If you're a regular partnership, not a limited partnership or a limited liability partnership, you're just a regular partnership. Two guys make a handshake agreement that we're going to you know, do these activities and we're going to split the money. You report that as a partnership in the IRS, but you don't file that partnership with the Secretary of State. So you don't have to do it either. It's only entities created with the document filing with the Secretary of State that have to do this. Yeah, this is horrible. Yeah. Uh, just just another reporting requirement that you, you go oh, 500 hours a day. You know, <laughs> this is like this is such a screw job. But here's here's my fundamental problem with this. I have no problem if like the government knows from the theoretical standpoint of combating tyranny. But the problem is I don't trust in light of these IRS leaks and the lowest learner leaks and these leaks and that leaks. The reason why a small business owner would create a limited liability corporation is to limit their liability in our litigious society. Right. Exactly They're not right. doing this to circumvent the law. No. They're doing this so they don't lose their house in a business dispute. Right. Right. So exactly in right. my worry is now these things eventually will become public or become part of some court remanded thing. And then just like this gets leaked and the Panama papers get leaked, you know, they'll know that Dan Pilla owns the A&W root beer on the corner of, you know, Route 1 and Route 66. And then when there's a slip and fall, they're going to come after. It's like. Sure, sure. The whole idea of limited liability companies is you, so a small business owner can take risks without losing everything through the bankruptcy laws. Like that's the fundamental reason of these entities. It's not to uh, money launder. It's not tax avoidance. It's not money laundering. It's certainly not tax evasion. It's not terrorism funding. These are all the excuses they gave us in the preface to the statute as to why Congress was passing this. The sense of Congress statement in the statute says that, you know, money laundering in the United States is out of control and funding of terrorism is out of control and, and tax evasion is out of control. And it's all these small businesses that are being created, two million small businesses created every year with these entities like corporations and LLCs and all of these tax cheaters and all of these international criminals and, and international terrorists are hiding behind these small corporations. That's just complete nonsense, Josh. Yeah, they can get a court order. Of course. Of course. If, uh, you know, they believe that some Nevada LLC had some terrorist activity, they have the authority under FinCEN, under any money laundering laws to figure all that stuff out anyway. That's exactly right. And when we're talking about the IRS, they don't even need a court order to get the information. If the IRS has any suspicion, and it doesn't have to be reasonable cause that rises to the Fourth Amendment level, right, to get to get a court to sign a warrant, doesn't need that. The Internal Revenue Service does not need reasonable cause to get access to a bank record. All they need is to start a legitimate investigation or a legitimate audit into the activities of a company, and they can issue an administrative summons under the Internal Revenue Code to that bank or credit card agency or mortgage company. It doesn't any third party, could be you, could be me, could be anybody, right, that they issue a summons to. And that summons is enforceable without a court ever finding that there is 
probable cause to believe that a crime was committed. So in other words, they can get access to the information simply because there's a legitimate tax investigation going on. And then they can find out who the owners are and where the bank accounts are. And that's just with the IRS. They have the same rules in banking and financial services. I can't open up an account for an LLC without linking it to a beneficial owner anyway. Yes, and that's it's exactly for the right. purpose of figuring out money laundering. So, yeah, I, I just think this is just another thing that the little guy gets screwed on. But here's the other thing, which is kind of funny. If the company is like a, you know, foreign LLC, like if you're really a criminal and you do like a foreign LLC, you're exempt. You know, the flowchart says maybe a reporting company, but the flowchart here on the website says, has the company registered to do business with in any U.S. state or tribal jurisdiction by following a document with the Secretary of State. That, that, that's the key right there, Josh. That foreign company has to have registered with a Secretary of State to do business in the United States. If it hasn't registered, it's not a reporting company. It theoretically is not doing business in the United States. Therefore, the law doesn't apply. So if we got a foreign company that's illegally operating in the United States and hasn't registered, well, what makes us believe that it's going to file this FinCEN report if it hasn't registered with the Secretary of State? Yeah, they don't have to, because I think that would be violation of probably some international treaty, you know. But so basically, if you own a real estate LLC or mom and pop business, unless you're one of these 23 exempt if you own 10 pieces of property or five pieces of property, you have to register for each one of these entities just once, though. One of the entities just once. And the good news is there's no filing fee, right? The bad news is what is it going to cost you out there in the marketplace to have the form prepared? Now, you can do it yourself. You go on FenceN's website. They've got a checklist there. It's not particularly complicated. So you can do it yourself, but how many businesses are going to undertake that versus going to their CPA or their business attorney and saying, you know, what, what's the deal with this? Do it for me. What's that going to cost him? I don't know, 100 bucks, 200 bucks. I, I don't know what the charge is going to be to do this, but it's just another cost of doing business. And the I gotcha element of this thing, Josh, is really troublesome. You know, there's 27 to 30 million small businesses out there that operate in some kind of entity, LLC a limited liability partnership, S corporation, regular corporation, right? Roughly 30 million of them out there. How many of these people are going to get the message? How many of them are going to jump through the hoops the way they're supposed to? There's going to be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these businesses that don't get the word, that don't do what they're supposed to do. And they're going to get pounded by these I gotcha laws. That's the thing that's so troubling is that's what's going to wipe out these businesses, which I completely believe that the federal government wants to destroy small businesses and wants everybody working for some big corporation out there somewhere. Oh, I firmly believe that in light of this. Public companies are exempt, but, you know, Joe's Pizza, you know, you got to do this. It's in a way, it's like a corporate fascistic state opera. It's horrible. What about trusts? Like, what if you create a a Nevada trust, a South Dakota trust, you know, one of these, you know, entities for estate planning. What about that? Well, that's a good question. And I answer the question by saying, did you file a document with the Secretary of State? In the state of Minnesota, just to use my own state, the state of Minnesota has what is called a Minnesota Business Trust. And so you can organize yourself as a business trust 
not unlike a corporation, not unlike a partnership, but you operate as a business trust under Minnesota state law. That trust is required to register with the Secretary of State. So if I set up a Minnesota business trust to operate for any purpose, then I would have to file this form. However, if I have a private trust, the vast majority of private trusts that are set up for estate planning purposes are not registered with the Secretary of State. You don't need to go to the Secretary of State to get a charter to function as a private trust. Those would not have to register. Yeah, I just think the government wants to know who does what. And I personally think it's one of those things where it's like that Elliot Al Capone, Elliot Ness. You know, it's like if if they really want somebody, they're going to use this as they're going to rack up that $500 a day charge. It just seems like too much. You know, and I talked to my business attorney. Guess how much they're charging for these per entity? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. My, my guess is 200 bucks. Of course, you're in New York. So what, what, you what know, are we talking They're doing like $1,200, 1600 an entity. And then we handle your filing. And it's like, come on, you know, I'm, I'm just going to report this myself. The only good news about this, Josh, is this is pretty simple form. It's a one page form. It's not like a tax return. It's not exotic at all. Put it this way. It's a lot easier to file this form than it is to file the FBAR report which all U.S. citizens have to file if they've got foreign assets and, you know, held in a foreign country above a certain amount of money every year. You got and you got to file that every year. Is that above above what money? If you have a foreign account that goes above ten thousand dollars at any point in the year, so it can go up to ten thousand and two dollars in June and then drop back again, you got to file the FBAR report. Man, these are pleasant conversations with Dan Pilla. <laughs> Enough to make my stomach churn. So we talked ERTC. We talked getting your taxes done, getting your uh, P&L done for 2023. What other tax tips do you think our listeners should know about? Well, I think you got to keep your ear to the ground. If you've got a tax delinquency, if you're struggling with tax liens, with, with money that you owe the IRS that you can't pay, now is the time to get that resolved. The IRS has been operating its offer and compromise program for decades, but really, Josh, there's never been a better time to negotiate with the IRS. There's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, that they, coming off of COVID, they really have recognized that there's a great deal of financial hardship out there. I might even say, and don't quote me on this, but I might even say that we've seen uh, the IRS show some signs of having a human heart. Oh, wow. In their consideration of offering compromise negotiations, where you go into the IRS and say, you know, you know, look at it, I owe you $100,000. There's no way I can pay it. I can pay, let's let's say, 5000 or ten or twenty, whatever the number might be, based on your financial facts and circumstances. So I would encourage anybody that's been struggling with the delinquent tax debt to get help now to get in to get that resolved because we don't know when the tide is going to change. It may not change for another couple of years. There's nothing that indicates to me right now that it's going to change in the short term. So now is the time to take advantage of that opportunity. So the IRS seems a bit less punitive than it has in the past or well well in in this in this one charitable. area in this one element of negotiating offers Josh yeah they've uh, they've shown some signs of being red-blooded human beings i have had somebody tell me in the past that when you do these offers in compromise you ask them like if you're going to give them money you ask them to not go after your past years what is that called again 
the offering compromise is exactly that. What we're what we're doing is we're saying, look, guys, I owe you this money for this block of years. All right, let's just say the number is 100 grand. And based on my current income and expenses and assets and liabilities, there's no way I can pay the 100 grand. I can pay, let's say, 10. And let's say the IRS does their asset investigation, which they do. They don't just take this on your word, all right? So you got to fully disclose income and expenses, assets and liabilities. And it is a very thorough investigation to make no mistake about it. They uncover all of the stones to see whether there's something out there that they can reach. So they're serious about doing the asset investigation. So you can't play games on this. But assuming you come to the $10,000 number, what they do is they agree to take the the 10 grand and they absolve you of liability for all those back years covered by that offer. So if you owe for six or eight or 10 years, that offer and compromise covers all those liabilities and that liability is then is, is extinguished in exchange for your offer payment provided, now here's an important proviso, that you stay current for the next five years. So once your offer is accepted, you're on a five-year compliance probationary period. You got to file your returns on time, pay your taxes in full and on time for those five years. And if you don't, they'll revoke the offer. And I'll tell you this, Josh, there's one deal out there, but there's not two. So if you fall off the beam in that five-year period of time, they reinstate that liability, then you got a real problem because they're not likely to renegotiate. Wow. All this is very scary. <laughs> well, it, it, the, the offering compromise idea shouldn't be scary. It really should be hope. I, I present that as, a, as a, an avenue of hope for people that are struggling with the IRS. Because when you get in trouble with the IRS, Josh, it's, it's a hopeless situation. You know, people hide. They go underground. They don't want to tell their friends and neighbors about it. They're embarrassed. They want to get it resolved, but they don't know how to. This is an opportunity for hope to get the resolution that's been evading these people for, in some cases, 10, 12, 15 years. But I've heard you also say to give hope, you know, the IRS auditors are generally real people and they have a kind of an ability to negotiate things like that. Well, auditors don't handle offer and compromise negotiations. There's two different functions in the IRS. An auditor looks at your tax return and determines through an examination whether the tax return is correct. So you file your tax return and you report your, your Schedule C business income and expenses, they go through and they nitpick that and they say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, you owe us 50 grand. Auditors, Josh, make mistakes all the time. They don't have, they don't have a heart that you can take all 4 million words of the Internal Revenue Code and boil it down to just three words as far as the auditors are concerned, and that's get the money. So they're always looking to get the money, so they always find mistakes, real or imagined, with a tax return, and this is why it's important to understand the right of appeal. When we're dealing with collection situations, that's different. Now you already owe the money, and now you owe the IRS this 50 grand or 100 grand, and you want to compromise that liability. Now you're going to a completely separate unit within the IRS called the Offer and Compromise Unit, called Centralized Offer and Compromise. Entirely different from audit. The centralized offer and compromise people evaluate income, expenses, assets, and liabilities for purposes of negotiating that settlement. And if you can't come to terms with the offer unit, you've got an appeal right from there as well. So it is important to understand the appeal right because no decision of a frontline IRS personnel, whether it's audit, collection, offer and compromise, uh, a penalty abatement, whatever it may be, 
All of those things are subject to review by the IRS's appeals office. And this is a very, very important right to know as a taxpayer, because when you challenge IRS decisions, you're almost always going to fare better in appeals than you did at the examination or the uh, offer and compromise level. Almost always. Hmm. So when do you fight it? Let's say it's a three grand, you know, discrepancy that the auditor says you owe three grand and you say you don't. Do you fight that or not really? Well, 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 see, this this is the nefarious part of dealing with the IRS. You see, we on this side of the table always have to make a business decision. It's a $3,000 bill. Is it worth fighting? Well, it might be worth a letter or two. It might be worth some pushback. Very simple to write a letter. It's not worth going to tax court over a $3,000 bill. I can promise you that. But it is worth a letter or two. Now, on the other hand, the IRS never has to make a business decision, and they won't make a business decision. They will fight you over $50 if they're convinced that they're correct, right? Mm. So they're not going to make a nuisance settlement. When you settle with the IRS, you're settling based on hazards of litigation. In other words, I'm arguing with the IRS that you can't win this case in court, so if it goes that far, and so you're better off resolving it now based on this settlement proposal. 50% of what's owed, 30% of what's owed, 10% of what's owed, or whatever the case may be. All right. So when you're on our side of the table, all right, now I got to look at hassle, anxiety, cost, all of these elements that come into play. Yeah, I have anxiety just talking to you. <laughs> well, this this should be an uplifting conversation, Josh. This should not be a this should not be an anxious uh, or anxiety ridden conversation. No, I'm okay. showing you how to get these problems solved. I know. I'm I'm just having fun. So I know you. So great. So as we conclude our talk on taxes, tax tips, you're giving us hope. So give us uh, hope in our final sixty seconds. Yeah, the hope is go to my website, taxhelponline.com. There's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. I don't care what kind of a problem you have. I don't care how long you've had the problem. I don't care what you've tried to do to fix the problem. I don't care who's told you you can't fix the problem. There's always a way to resolve the case. For small businesses that don't have trouble, get my books, Dan Pillow's Small Business Tax Guide. It will keep you out of trouble with the IRS. So go to taxhelponline.com and check out our resources. Thank you, Dan Pilla, TaxHelpOnline.com, and get his book. The latest book is The Small Business Tax Guide. Dan Pilla's Small Business Tax Guide. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Josh. Thank you.